Welcome to the Broken Vessels Podcast. Jeremiah 18.4 states, And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. This is the Broken Vessels Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Simpkins. This is a podcast where we have discussions on theological themes for the broken to bring encouragement and hope in Christ. And I would like to welcome you back to another episode of the Broken Vessels podcast. I'm so thankful that you're here to join me today. And we're going to revisit a subject that we've talked about before, and that is the subject of biblical counseling. And I've, in several episodes, definitely made my opinion known (laughs) about kind of how I feel about biblical counseling in general. However, I do believe that when it comes to brokenness and gospel-centered biblical counseling, which is the subject of what we're talking about today, I think it is important to understand that there is a way to do biblical counseling that is effective and needful in our lives as believers. And again, we don't want to ever throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to looking at Scripture and understanding that there is counsel there for us that we should heed and listen to. I have a wonderful guest today that is going to join me that actually is a biblical counselor and has been doing this for around 10 years. And he's a brother that I've gotten connected to, again, from the Theocast Facebook group that I've connected with so many people that are gospel-centered folks that understand law-gospel distinction and understand monergistic sanctification and all of these things that really, for my opinion, is very important to have that undergirds what we do when we talk about the gospel. And I think it's really important, if you're going to have somebody that's going to counsel you biblically, to have those distinctions and categories. And the brother I have with me today is Zeb Lyons. He is the husband of Amanda and father of He grew up in a pastor's home watching the blessings and chaos of ministry life and seeing the damage that the church can unfortunately do. He is both a pastor and a licensed practical counselor associate in the state of Texas and has been doing the work of pastoral and biblical care for over a decade. Zeb, it's so wonderful to have you here on the Broken Vessels podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Josh. It is good to be here. I've been a longtime listener. I think I made a comment to you as we were chatting beforehand. I think I've listened to every episode, but the last couple that have dropped. And so it's a blessing and honor to be here and to bring my heart for this subject into your discussion and to the broken people that we are all a part of. Amen. Amen. Most certainly. So we want to get into this topic and we've talked about the history of the biblical counseling movement in a previous episode. However, I would like for us to give for our listeners a brief overview of how the modern biblical counseling movement came to be. I say I'll do my best to keep this as brief as I can because you could spend, as you've already done, entire episodes talking about such things. Sure. But one of the things that I think that we miss or that we tend to forget, especially in Western culture, is that our history is neither immediate or shorter long term. It's 
long, long term. It may not make sense until I explain a little bit more. Sure. Most people like to think about the history of the current biblical counseling movement as starting in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Most people would put a pin in 1970 with Jay Adams and his publication of Competent Counsel as the start of the biblical counseling movement. From a modern sense, that's correct, but how we got there goes way further back. Right. So biblical counseling as a whole goes all the way back to the garden. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when you have God meeting with Adam and Eve and giving them counsel for their future while giving them punishment for the sin that they had just done. Right. Eve, this is what's going to happen. You are going to eventually bear a child, and through your seed, he's going to crush the serpent's head. All of this will be rectified. Now, most people look at that and they say, well, that's not biblical counseling. But it is, because what is the essence of that? It's hope. We're recording this at the end of December. We're at the end of Advent season. As a matter of fact, if you follow that, you know we're lighting the fifth candle this coming Sunday. And it is a essence of just remembering what we're looking forward to, which for us now is the coming of Christ, his second coming and the culmination of all things. But it didn't always stay that way. You know, you can move all through human history. We have the Reformation, we have the Puritans, we have the founding of our nation and biblical counseling, which really was the pastors walking alongside their people as shepherds, both good and bad. You had bad biblical counselors in the 1600s, just as you do today. Yeah. But that was the norm. But then in the 1800s, things began to shift. And so you had, we had the Second Great Awakening, which I would really like to call it something different. I don't know what we could put in the history books that would be acceptable. It wasn't necessarily so much a Second Great Awakening as basically a rolling back of all the progress that had been made. Right. Because with the Second Great Awakening, with Charles Finney would come in revivalism, would come in a whole lot of preaching of damnation, which is still accurate. Don't hear me wrong. Preaching of damnation, but he instituted what would become known as the anxious bench. Yeah. And it's the whole, have I made the right choice? Have I done what needs to be done? Right. And it removed God out of the equation and made salvation all about what man can do. And that really put a crimp in so many things for the American church and Western culture as it moved forward. And we saw that play out. Eastern and Western Europe were dealing with a lot of the same things in the same time. You come to the second half of the 19th century, and you're dealing with the rise of the humanist side, especially in Germany, which would lead into the psychological movements. Everybody knows the name Freud, whether they know anything about him or not. They recognize the name. They know, oh, Freud is associated with psychology, and also he was weird. He had a whole lot of things to do with sex. Right. Absolutely. That is you know, what most people know of. And he caused a lot of damage. Right. If there's one thing I can praise the modern psychological movements for, it's that now we can look back on people like Freud and kind of go, you know, there were some things there that while we can appreciate, he probably wasn't the one that we should hang our pin on as far as who founded everything. But you can't kind of help it because, you know, his names were really what helped cause all of that. Yeah. And in the process... True biblical counseling fell by the wayside because you had the expansion of our nation. You had the westward you know, movement of society. We're going to take everything from the East Coast to the West Coast, the whole, you know, from sea to shining sea that we think of with American exceptionalism that says we're greater and we're better than everybody else. And in the process, the gospel was there because the gospel's never lost. Mm -hmm. But walking beside people and truly counseling them was left to other things and other people. The temple movement comes to mind as a prime example of the outside world having influences on things that really, if the gospel was at work, if the church was doing what the church should do, shouldn't have to be a thing. 
but it was, and it's what took place. And so as you move into the 20th century, then the rise of psychology, the rise of counseling as both a profession and also as an offshoot from medicine really came to fruition. And pastors, again, continue to just kind of let things go by the wayside. We had other things on our plate, if you will. You know, we were fighting against things like Darwinism. We were fighting against evolution. We had the Scopes Monkey Trial in the 1920s that really just kind of, when you look at American history, fundamentalism or otherwise, the Scopes Monkey Trial is a really good breaking point because things were never the same after that trial. In the lead up to that, you had the whole back and forth, literally in the various camps over the fundamentals of the faith, but none of it, none of it involved actually walking alongside your people. It involved going after very important things. You know, we're not here really to discuss theology, but at the same time we are. It involved protecting things that were very much important from the liberal lean that they had gone. But we lost so many other things and the world came in to fill the gap. Yeah. If the church isn't going to be there, who is? Someone else is going to step up. And that's really where then we can fast forward to the 1960s. And the humanist movement of the day was really beginning to have a stranglehold. And Jay Adams, as a layman, as a pastor, as someone who was seeing what was going on, is going, oh, wait a second. This should not be what's going on. We have the Bible. We have everything we need all in one book. We do not need these things out here. And so that's really where he then took off with his work, Competent to Counsel, then, of course, as I already said, was published in 1970. And we have seen what has taken place since then. Biblical counseling, as we know today, has gone through about, I'm going to say, three different versions, if you will. The second generation of people, David Paulson comes to mind, that came up after Jay Adams, took what he did and went, well, hey, we really like this, but maybe we should go this route a little bit more. And so they took some of his more stringent, in-your-face approach. That's where the whole term that it comes from. It's to be <laughs> abrupt and dramatic and right there. They're like, he was so focused on sin that maybe he forgot that there's actually suffering. Right. So let's do a little bit more on the suffering. And then now you're into this third generation, if you will, that's kind of trying to find a way to balance all of it. Right. And where we find ourselves kind of caught in the in-between. And then I myself am in the camp that neither side really likes because, yes, I counsel from a biblical perspective, but I'm also a license holder. In my case, for the state of Texas, I have degrees in actual secular psychology, and I see the benefit of it when everybody else, either side, tends to look at me and go, well, wait a second, you can't have both. But why can't we? Right. We have common grace. So while Freud himself was... I say crazy, and I really do mean that. Yeah, um, he was. was crazy. <laughs> There's a lot of things that he actually put out that we can look at and go, well, maybe he didn't quite know what he was looking at, but he understood that there was a problem there. Right. And yes, while some of it decisively is sin, there are other points where it is other brokenness that is coming through. Broken Vessels podcast, for those of us that are hurting, that have been through things, there is brokenness that has to be taken into account whenever there is someone that is sitting in front of you. Whether it's because of something we have done that has been done to us, or whether it's the fact that we live in a world that literally is compounded by the effects of the fall. I'm sitting here at my desk and I'm looking out through the window as I'm talking to you, and I can see the beautiful green yard that I have here in Texas because the weather is still decent enough for us to have green grass. But I'm looking at all of the fallen leaves. I'm looking at all of the dead hanging on the trees, the branch that came down in the storm last night. I can see these effects of life that were never intended. And yes, in the authority of God, we know that he knew what was going to come about. But creation was perfect, or it was good, and it was very good, as my kids would say after doing catechism questions. I can see the effects of the fall just for myself looking out, and yet I can see the effects of the fall on myself. Mm. 
again, some of it, my own choices. I deal with high blood pressure. I deal with a body that we probably don't want to talk about too much. I celebrate <laughs> what Lord has done. But when I go to the gym and I'm groaning under the weight of weights or under the treadmill as I'm running, what am I doing? I'm trying to alleviate some of the excess weight that I've put on as effects of the fall, where I think that probably wouldn't have been. Yeah. You know, I think we all would have been able to maintain body weight. That's what I would hope, right? Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, that is an overview of how it came to be. Everybody wants to hang the hat on Jay Adams as the founder of the current movement. And while his name has reason for being there, it has always existed. He's just the one that brought it back to the forefront. Right. And if you were to go to Google and type in biblical counseling, you're going to get a whole host of different websites and perspectives and things like that. And there's a couple of books out there that if someone wants to read on it, that they can look at. Keith Lambert has a book called The Biblical Counseling Movement After Adams that came out about 10 years ago. And that's really good. If you want to look at the biblical counseling movement itself, David Holson, who I've already mentioned once before, he was like the second generation leader with Jay Adams Group. He literally has a book called The Biblical Counseling Movement. It's almost 400 pages long. So it's kind of a hefty bit of work, but it kind of stops in the 1990s as far as the history goes. And so he wrote it as his doctorate. So that kind of gives you an idea. Things have changed a whole lot since the 1990s for yeah. the good and for the bad. Yeah. So anyways, hope yeah. that answered your question for you. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So then that gives us a good little overview and a review of the history of where we've come from as far as the biblical counseling movement goes. But what are some of the issues and problems that you have seen as a biblical counselor in the movement that have led to brokenness to those suffering and seeking help? I had to think about how to answer this one because it can go multiple different directions. I will usually use a personal example first when I think about this. So growing up in the 1990s, Growing up in fundamentalism for one, but growing up in the 90s for two, every decade is interesting, but it was a very interesting, interesting decade. We'd come out of the 1980s with all the satanic crises that kind of seemed to plague parents and their worries about, you know, what their kids were going to fall into. Some of it still cracks me up. If you grew up in fundamentalism, you probably saw them. But if you've ever, if you knew who Jack Chick was and you ever saw Chick Tracks, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> really, you really played into some of those 1980s, 1990s dynamics. Yeah. of fear. That's really what it was. And every time I see them now, number one, I cringe, but number two, I want to go, where's God? Yeah. You know, <laughs> why do we have fear in the face of evil when we serve the only sovereign one? Mm-hmm. Let's stop giving credit to Satan. Sorry. I'll have to get off that rabbit trail. Uh, <laughs> but, but anyways, growing up in the nineties was interesting. I'm the oldest of five kids. My parents had five kids in seven years. So there was an awful lot of us real close together. Right, um, I right. had my seventh birthday one week and my baby sister was born the next week. <laughs> <laughs> and that led to a very interesting period of life. We were already kind of in a transition period. My dad had been doing training under his pastor at the time in his hope he was wanting to go into pastoring a church, but he was having some issues with some things, doctrinally speaking, and in beliefs. And there was questions and things that were going on. And my mom, after giving birth, fell into what we now call postpartum. You know, this is what we have to remember in the early 1990s. It still didn't necessarily have a name. The baby blues is what everybody you know used to refer to it as. But my mom had an incredibly large dose of postpartum. And looking back on it now, it's 
crazy to think about. You know, my parents were doing the best that they could. We had our own history of triumph and tragedy. There were things that had gone on in our world that, you know, would have caused other people to give up, but not my parents. They kept moving forward. They kept going for the gold, if you will, to use some speak. But when she fell into that depression, my dad didn't know really what to do with it. Yeah. Obviously, I speak from a place of bias and faulty memory. I was a seven-year-old, so I can only remember things from a seven-year-old's point of view. But my dad drove truck to pay for things. That's how he made his living. So he's gone most of the week. Right. There's five of us kids, seven and under at home, and my mom homeschooled. And we lived 45 minutes from the church. Yeah. So there was no close connection to the church body. We had family around, and it's not like we didn't have people, but there was an awful lot on their plate. And when we talk about problems and issues, my mom went to the pastor for counseling and she literally was told that she obviously had unconfessed sin because she was depressed. Mm. She needed to pray more, read more of her Bible, confess her sin, and it would all go away. Yeah. So why did we deal with the chaos of postpartum and all the depression for over two years at that point? It was beyond the norm. And of course, now as a therapist, as one who sees these things and as one who has watched my wife go through the postpartum aspects of giving birth and having kids, there are definitely things that can be done. The wives or the women can talk to their doctors and they can you know, be put on an antidepressant to help them alleviate some of those hormones because that's really what it is. Right. Hard and blue, that amounts to, to alleviate that some and allow them to be able to at least have a more clear head as they function. Right. But there was no lifting a burden. Instead, it was adding to. And that is what I have seen as an ongoing continual problem. Even now, 30 years later, if you have someone, and this is not me bad-mouthing Jay Adams, I have very high disagreements with him, and I would never recommend any of his materials. But if you have someone that all they've ever seen for biblical counseling material is Jay Adams' original stuff, that's all they're ever going to think of, is that the only reason you have an issue is because there's sin. And while there can be sin, that is not always the issue. Yeah, And I've literally had someone go, oh, well, you know, well, that was postpartum. It's the body doing its thing. Still means that there's sin that has to be dealt with, but you got to deal with the body too. Do you not hear what you just said? It does not drive, <laughs> you know, and, and it goes beyond that to other things. I personally had my own experiences with this. I had a wonderful experience. Matter of fact, the guy and I were talking the other day just in passing because he's going through a rough spot and I was trying to offer him some encouragement at the same time, but he was great about trying to look at things in my past and in my history while also literally sitting there with an open Bible reminding me, here's these things, which that's the way it should be. Not because the Bible is the end all be all. It is, don't hear me wrong, but because there are things that play into our lives that we have to take into account. I'm sorry, someone who grows up in the United States of America has a vastly different view on what it means to have a want than someone that grows up in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Or someone who grows up in China. Now, very different things, very different points of view, but we have different perspectives. And if we can't take that into account, we do a disservice not only to ourselves and to our clients, but we do a disservice to the Lord and we do not allow him to work. Right. We do not give him the same way to work. He's going to work whether we do or not, but we don't give him the glory and honor that's due him when we try to put everything into this little box. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's trying to put things in a box and trying to say that it's way more simpler than what it is when it comes to the brokenness in life and kind of doing what Job's friends did. 
It has to be a sin. There has to be a sin that you've committed that is the reason why you're going through what you're going through. It was so simplistic to them. That's just not it. Like you said, is sin involved? Of course it is. We live in a broken, fallen world. The reason why we deal with brokenness and fallenness and all of the implications is because of sin. Does that necessarily mean it's our sin? No. It could be somebody else's sin or just the brokenness of the world. And we've talked about this, but to take it down to where it is so simplistic that it's just the sin that you must confess. And then you need to memorize 10 Bible verses on note cards. And then all of your problems will just magically go away is ridiculous. It's just, <laughs> that's not biblical. <laughs> so. so one of the things that I do about half of my clientele at the moment are those that are not seeking biblical counseling, maybe to give a little bit more perspective on how I operate as the pastor of the church. I am open to my congregation for counseling for any and all needs that they have. One of the blessings that I have is one of their elders to be able to do that. But at the same time, I also see people that are outside the church, whether that's in the grief groups that I run, I run a couple of those every year, whether that is with the online helps that I'm a part of. I'm on one of the online virtual therapy forms. That's one of the main ways that I see people. And I'm tied because ethically speaking, as a secular licensed therapist in the state of Texas, I am bound by the state's code of ethics, which means I am not bringing religion in. Now, a therapist that will truly be honest will always tell you that it doesn't matter that we're supposed to be an empty blackboard that they can write anything on as the client. We bring our biases into the counseling room. It doesn't matter what you do or which religion you hold. And I do my best to ensure that my clients are respected in that way, in that they're obviously not going to have the gospel shoved down their throat. Number one, I'm not allowed to do that in that moment. But number two, that doesn't do any good either to shove something down that's going to be thrown to the wind. Right. But one of the things that I do a lot is I work on worksheets. I'm like, I give people homework. Here's the things you're going to work on. But we talk about things such as negative thought processes. I'm sorry. We could go through the book of Proverbs, biblically speaking, and I do. And we can look at what the Bible has to say about how we think and what we do. But memorizing a verse in Proverbs doesn't necessarily mean that your thought process is automatically changed. Right. Thinking of an example right now, this could be applicable to many different clients. Okay, you have negative thoughts about this particular item. So what causes that to come up? What's a trigger, to use that word, that causes that negative emotion to arise? Then we can begin to look at what caused it originally, because maybe it's something that is proverbially speaking buried back in their childhood and needs to be dealt with. Yes, in a church setting, could it be sin that maybe was never confessed, and that's what causes them to negatively think on things? Right. Absolutely. But also by the same token, it could also literally be a personality quirk. My favorite, favorite illustration when I'm talking to folks is Winnie the Pooh. And everybody's like, what do you mean Winnie the Pooh? (laughs) Okay. A.A. Milne wrote a fantastic story. Yes, I grew up and I watched the Disney cartoons. Yes, my kids have seen all of it. Disney didn't necessarily do it justice. He made fantastic cartoons. Don't get me wrong. But A.A. Milne's whole point in writing these stories for his little boy, Christopher, was so that Christopher could see how to interact with all these different people that you're going to go through in life. Every person or every character in Winnie the Pooh, from Down in the Dumps Eeyore to Overly Fearful Piglet to Bouncing Off the Walls Tigger, was based on somebody that he knew in real life that we all relate to. Right. We all know someone like those characters. 
Why is that? Well, because if we were all the same and we all had a pasted smile on our face all the time and we all thought nothing but good things and we never had a moment where we just were under a great big burden. Okay, number one, life would be boring. Number two, it would not be reality. And we again would be denying the sin nature of the world that we live in today. Yeah. And that's what the more nuthetic side of the biblical counseling world wants us to be. Right. They want us to be robots. Cookie cutter. Who all act the same, do the same, live the same. And while living the same is fine, you know, especially if we're talking about a lack of sin, as long as we're talking about a propensity to not sin as much, we're not going to have lack of sin. We're still going to sin. But as long as we're trying to allow the Lord to guide and the Lord to lead and we're resting in Christ's finished work and not our own, that's fine. But all too often, that whole trying to shove everybody into the box, which again, shoves God into a box, mm-hmm. negates in a human way, what Christ has done for us. And it causes more damage to those that are already hurting. Yeah. I can put more law on every single day and feel worse, or I can look to God for grace and realize that he's going to get me through. Amen. Well, a lot of what you're describing, I've shared myself on this podcast several times about the bad biblical counseling experiences that I've had. And really many of our listeners have had similar experiences. So the danger with that is to have the attitude or the opinion then that, well, I had a bad experience with biblical counseling, therefore biblical counseling is null and void. We don't want anything to do with that. Well, that's not being realistic either. That's pendulum swinging. So it's important for us to know that we need to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. So yeah, is there bad biblical counseling and is a good majority of it bad out there in the movement? Yeah, for sure. And I will shout that from the rooftops because I've seen it. You and I talked before we started recording and I told you I've had like five or six biblical counseling experiences and maybe one of them was for the most part positive. Now, it is important, however, for us to seek counsel from Scripture, and you just gave us the reasons in in our conversation at the beginning of this podcast. It is important for us to seek counsel from Scripture and from qualified leaders, but I want to talk a little bit now about what does that look like? Because there's a lot of people that are like, well, how do I seek this counsel and how do I know if it's good or bad and how do I filter through that? And especially for people that are suffering brokenness in their lives, I mean, you're in a weakened state. So it's really hard for you to depend on yourself (laughs) to be able to have the capacity, mental capacity to be able to be like, hey, this person's telling me something that doesn't sound right. I mean, you're in turmoil or whatever, or you're really suffering or you're really depressed But we want to be able to guide people because one of the things that I know is that when you're in this state of brokenness, whether it be sin or not sin or something that somebody that's sinned against you or you're depressed or you're dealing with whatever, you've had a loved one die or, you know, you're going through divorce or you've lost your job or just myriad of things that you may be going through that could be causing the issues that you're having that brings you to a point where you're like, I need some help. I need somebody to help me figure this out. And then you go to somebody and you're in such a weakened state that it's hard for you to know for sure that what you're receiving and the guidance that you're being given is legitimate. And that can really mess you up. I know it messed me up because you're like, well, they're saying this, 
I'm not really completely sure about this, but I'm just in a position right now that I don't know what's what. I don't know up from down right now. And man, that can really mess a person up. So I guess what I'm asking then is what should it look like so that we can help our listeners to be able to know what to be looking for? It is a more difficult question to answer, not because the question itself is difficult, but because each person's unique. There are those who really will benefit from, and I I almost cringe, but there are those who will benefit from a more Jay Adams-esque, nothetic, just boom in your face, what's going on. But that's a personality quirk. That's not a blessing of good counsel, if you will. But the first thing that I ever tell folks is that they need to be comfortable with who they're talking to. Yeah. That very well could be the pastor of their church. You know, their elder may be gifted in being able to sit and listen to you. And that's where, when I talk about having done this for a decade now, I've been licensed in the state of Texas for two years. I was involved in doing all of this, you know, in the finishing my master's and all that for several years before that. But it all started way back when it's the fact that I can sit and listen to people and I can hear what's being said and actually allow them to say what needs to be said. Mm. I have a welcoming notice that goes out when I get a new client on the one platform I'm on. And it's just just a real basic. It's all of like 500 words. Basic, you know, hey, I have you know, see that you've been given to me. Here's who I am, a little bit about myself. And, you know, whatever's going on, you can share it here with me. And there will be no shame and no judgment given from my side. And I can already hear some of the Christian side just kind of cringing at that going, oh, but, but in order for someone to actually deal, and in in this case, especially knowing the podcast and your audience, we're not talking about those who are outside the faith. I mean, there very well may be someone who listens to this that is not saved, and I understand that. But 95% of your listeners are going to be those who not only are saved, but they're searching for that balm of Gilead, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And they're not going for counseling just because they've had a bad day. (laughs) And if you are, that's perfectly fine. You know, that that is okay. There's a good reason that you decided you need to talk to someone. But you need to be able to open up and know that there'll be no shame. There'll be no judgment. Doesn't mean that on the inside, the therapist or the pastor, whomever you're talking to, doesn't mean that they're not going to be internally cringing and going, how am I ever going to deal with this? You know, wondering how you got there, what caused you to get there. Right. Now, those are questions that they should be internally asking because that'll help inform the questions that they then ask you so they can help you figure out how you got there, what's been going on, and how to get you out of it. But again, no shame and no judgment and just a willingness to sit and listen. Yeah. And I think sometimes from a scriptural point of view, I take clients to a couple of places in scripture, especially the first couple of weeks or first couple of times that we meet, depending on what's been going on, what the reason for coming in for counseling is. But one of them is I usually will take them to First Kings and we'll look at 17, 18, and 19. And we'll see the interaction that Elijah has there. He has the great big, my dad would call it, used to call it the battle on Mount Carmel or the battle of the Mount Carmel Corral when he was trying to be funny about it. And, you know, there's all these things that are going on. You have this great display of power from God, not from Elijah, but from God. And then Israel at that point in time is in the middle of a drought. And at the end of all of this, God comes to him and says, I'm sending rain. It's all done. It's all over. It should have been a period of rejoicing. But instead, what do we see happening? While the people rejoice, Elijah's down the dumps. Mm -hmm. And Elijah goes off because he's going to go meet God. 
And everybody goes, and it's good. You get to the end of the story, and he's having his experience with God on the mountain, and that's where we have that wonderful bit. God's not in the fire. He's not in the great storm. He's not in the lightning or the tornado. God came to him as a whisper on a still small voice, mm-hmm. as a whisper in the wind. That's fantastic. But it's the little bit in the in-between that people tend to miss. And that's where Elijah is dejected. He's downtrodden. He's beat down. He's been doing all the right things. He's living for God. He's doing great things for God by God's power. Right. But he doesn't know what to do anymore. And literally, what does God tell him to do? God sends an angel. He's sitting there by the brook Kidron. And the angel comes to him and says, here's food. Here's water. You need to sleep. You need to eat. You need to drink. Yeah. (laughs) You need rest. And sometimes for those who are broken, that is all that we need is rest. Yeah. When my wife and I, a decade ago, left our fundamentalist background, we were broken. We had been ready to leave for months at that point, and I had insistently stayed. You know, I'm one of the staff at the church. I've got people that are under me. Regardless of what was going on behind the scenes, you know, we have to make sure that everything looks like it's good, that there's nothing else going on. And what does it do? It beats you down. Mm. And we were broken. And we visited several churches after we left Made some mistakes in that way. We're going to go try this one. Oh, nope. Too much like what we just left. I ain't touching that that ever again. A little too far to the other side. Okay, well, we won't go there. And we ended up in another church in our town. And pastor and I got talking. And we visited back and forth. We decided that that's where we would go ahead and at least join as members until we figured out the rest of life. And he sat down with me in his office one day. And we're talking about this. And he never asked the questions. He never wanted to know what the hurt was but he could see it. And he's like, you are more than welcome to join, but only if you're going to let us love on you and help you heal. Mm -hmm. And you'll not be allowed to do anything for at least six months. Wow. (laughs) Not because he was tying our hands, right? but because he knew from where we were coming that our vessel was broken. Yeah. Yeah. And it needed repair and it needed healing. And I look back now and I wish I would have gone and sought some some counsel at that time. It may have prevented some other things that would eventually come up. And that's part of the story of today or of where I'm at today. But there needs to be that ability for them to understand that they're going to be heard. Yeah. And that there'll be no shame and that there's going to be no shock. Well, and just to be just to be cared for. Just to be cared for. Just, you know, basically no strings attached. We want to care for you. I mean, that's yeah. amazing. Man, we need more pastors like that. <laughs> so. yeah. And that's one of those things now, here again, looking back, knowing more of his story and knowing more of the church hurt that he went through mm-hmm. um, as a Native American coming up in very racist Oklahoma culture. Right. He dealt with a whole lot of things that he then turned around and has used to help inform his ministry. And it's fantastic to watch him over the years. Well, there you go, brothers and sisters. Like I've said over and over again, just like it says in second Corinthians comfort, those with the same comfort with which you've been comforted. And that's what, exactly. that's what we want to do. So in your biblical counseling ministry, what does it look like to actually bring gospel comfort and healing to these specific situations and circumstances that people may be facing. And you've definitely hammered home the point that everybody's unique. And I agree with that. Like, I think it is important, and this is very important for counselors, to come at each situation as this is a unique situation. You cannot just cookie cutter it. You can't put a blanket statement over things. You have got to come at it and understand this is a unique 
image bearer of God, and this is a unique situation. So I'm thankful that you're making that point because it is important. But what does it look like in your ministry when you bring gospel comfort and healing to these specific situations? So I made the comment, I've already referred to First Kings, but one of the other passages of Scripture that I go to quite a bit, I love working through the book of Psalm with mm-hmm. clients. Number one, because everything is in the book of Psalm. I don't oh, think people yeah. <laughs> realize that. Everything is there. You've got 150 different chapters to choose from, and you literally have everything from birth to death, from joy to weeping, and all that falls in between. Mm-hmm. And I Obviously, we serve our sovereign God. That is not by mistake. That's in there, too. Our sovereign God. That's in the Psalms, too. (laughs) Very much so. Very much so. But I always enjoy going to the book of Psalm, not because I enjoy them seeing their pain and their hurt, but I enjoy being able to take my people when they're in my clients to be able to see that God is there and he's listening. And so usually, obviously, it's dependent upon the individual situation and what's going on. But I usually will start with Psalm 13. And people go, what do you mean by Psalm 13? And I'm like, yeah, it's a passage that usually doesn't get touched. It's not happy-go-lucky, happy, you know, feelings all the time kind of thing. Because it literally asks the question, how long, God? How long is this going to happen? How long do I have to deal with this? How long are you going to forget me? And I use it as an example to show them that their questions are not without biblical places where it's been asked. Yeah. They're not without example. And most of the time we hear it, especially in evangelical culture, we hear that everything has to be positive. Think about the greatest and best worship songs. One of the things that I do for my church, I'm the director of worship, director of music. And, you know, so obviously in Facebook groups and things that I'm in, for the people that do the same thing, we talk about what's on the CCLI, Christian Copyright Licensing Incorporated, you know, what's on their top 10 list of most used songs. And you don't usually find songs that are dealing with trauma and hurt. You don't usually find the songs that are asking, Lord, my heart's broken. What am I supposed to do here? You know, you find songs that are about the joy of the Lord and about happiness and about, you know, here's all the blessings that have come from you to me. And it's not that those things aren't appropriate in context, right? but the Western culture itself doesn't have a good way to grieve. We do not have a cultural norm for grieving, say, as others do, whether that's grieving because of the loss of someone through death, whether that's grieving because of, you know, trials and tribulations and circumstances. We just don't. We have the proverbial, hey, you went to the funeral, your grandpa died, you had three days off, now you got to be back to work as if nothing happened. Rub some dirt in it and walk it off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we treat the church the same way. And so when I've got folks who are coming in, I want to start peeling that back, not because it's dependent upon us, but because they need to be able to see that the psalmist or Job, he's another one that I go to quite a yeah. bit, but the psalmist were able to open up to God and go, hey, I really don't like this. What's this going to mean? But that's never where they stop. Right. And this is how that chapter finishes. It's got six verses. It's why I love to go to it because it's short and sweet and it's to the point. But it says in verse five, but so regardless of all these negatives that I just spent four verses talking about, but I have trusted in your steadfast love and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Amen. And that that is part of what bringing gospel comfort requires. You have to show the yin and the yang. I run two grief groups every year, sometimes a third over the summer. It depends on scheduling and so forth. 
a shout out to the program called Grief Share. If you've got folks who have lost someone, it's a phenomenal program that they can be involved with done by churches all across the nation. Not something that's denominationally specific, but I run one in the fall and one in the spring. And I always bring scripture into it because what's the whole thing? We walk through grief with a savior and a sovereign God who knows what grief is. My God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? Nevertheless, God, thy will be done. Talking about what Christ had to say as he's praying there in the garden. We serve a God who knows what loss is like. He created perfection. He created man for fellowship with him. And yes, he knew it would take place. Yes, in his sovereignty, everything was already set in stone from before the foundations of the world were laid. Christ was going to die, and we know that. But he still knows what loss is. And that is why we get to read verses like that and realize, Lord, how long are you going to forget me? It won't be that long. We may have to think on that. We may have to realize that's not going to be forever, but I'm still going to trust you till that day comes. Mm. And then I'll hop, skip, and jump through the book a little bit, depending on how long we're going to meet and what's going on, because there's all sorts of topics that we can cover in Psalm itself. But another one that I go to, and I'll try to wrap this up here quickly, I like to take folks to the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk, depending on what part of the country you're from. <laughs> Literally, which it's funny because my, my lead elder and I both say it differently. And so when I preached the last time, I said it this way. And then like two weeks later, he made a comment about it and it was said his way. And it's like, yep, but I take them to the book of Habakkuk and we have one chapter, Psalm 13 that I talked about, but the entire three chapters of Habakkuk is that way. And we can see that there are promises that are made from God to him, but he's asking the Lord, what's this going to take? What's this going to do? But here's the thing, and this is what I always take my people back to. Verse number one of chapter two, I will take my stand at my watch post. I will station myself at the tower and look out to see what he will say for me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Sometimes it requires us learning how to wait for the Lord. Mm. And that is an uncomfortable position to be in, especially when we're broken. You know, going back to the the podcast title, but especially when we're broken, when we want to be healed. Yeah. Lord, why are you making me wait? Why are you making me sit here in whatever, you know, fill in the blank with whatever this is? But learning to wait on the Lord is an important and integral part of our journey. We think about waiting and think about the church 2,000 years ago, almost. They've been long gone. 1,970-ish years. They've been long gone. And what were they doing? They thought the Lord was coming back right that moment within the next little short future. Yeah. And he hasn't returned yet. So what are we still doing today? Waiting. We're still waiting. Yeah. But are we waiting with dread or are we waiting with anticipation? Because we know that God is coming and has already completed everything. And because of that, because we know those things, we get to rest in him. Yeah. And then that's where I get to be able to take them back to the gospel itself personally and just remind them that, hey, this is what it's for. Hmm. The gospel is just as much for you today as the one who's been redeemed for 50 years Mm -hmm. as it is for the one I'm sitting with tomorrow who's hearing it for the very first time. Yeah. Because we get to remember what he did for us. When God redeemed me, when he saved me, I was 16 and growing up in pastor's home and the craziness of it all, you'd have thought it had already happened, right? And I get to look back now and I know what I was like before. I know the life I've lived after, all the disappointment, the failures, the hurts, the things that I'm like, Lord, how did I as a redeemed individual do these things? 
But because you've saved me, you have been the one to redeem all of that, and we can turn it into something else. I can see all the negative that took place in my life, the craziness of my family history, the church hurt that I have experienced. And yet, what do I get to do with that today? I get to turn around and sit with those who are hurting in the church and go, I know where you've been. Let me walk with you through this. I'll sit with you for just a moment, but I'm not going to let you sit in the pit. I'm going to get you up out of the pit. We're going to sit by the fire. We're going to dry you off. We're going to get you feeling better. And then we're going to walk through the valley. And when we get to the other side of the valley, then you're going to continue on and you'll be just fine. Mm, And I am privileged. And it truly is that I'm privileged to work with a pastoral care network as a licensed counselor. And I have between five and eight clients any given time from them. And I get to walk with pastors, their wives, other staff in the church through their difficulties. Mm. And in that introductory first time that we meet, it's a, I know where you've been. Maybe not the specifics. Everybody's church story is different. Right. But I know what it's like to pastor. I know what it's like to go through church hurt. I know what it's like to bear some of those burdens. So let me help equip you. We've got the word. We're going to pray. I'm going to apply that balm of Gilead, and we're going to put you on your journey. Amen. Amen. At least that's the goal in the prayer, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, as we wrap up here, one of the things that is always a fear for me if I'm going to tell somebody that they need to seek counseling is it's kind of a hit and miss kind of thing where you don't really know for sure if you're going to find a good biblical counselor or somebody that's going to completely pile on or add on Mm -hmm. to the suffering that you're already going through. And so as a biblical counselor, I guess I'm asking you what your advice would be to our listeners, because I don't want anybody to go through things I've been through, (laughs) you know, and I would like for you to be able to give some good advice that can help people that they know they need counsel and they want to receive counsel from the scripture, which all of us as Christians should want. But what do you think is a good way of kind of deciding to find biblical counseling and what are some things that they need to kind of look out for? So I'll try to keep this concise and I'll take a two-pronged approach to it. If someone's listening and they're set on having counsel that's coming from someone who is a licensed therapist, because you can have licensed therapists that are biblical counselors, you know, and then you can have biblical counselors who are not. That's not a positive negative to either side in that regard. If you have someone that is looking for a licensed therapist, I would recommend, number one, that you take a look at the American Association of Christian Counselors. They have a find a therapist directory that you can look through. You look in Texas, you're going to find me. Right. (laughs) But that's AACC.net, if I remember correctly. I can send that to you and you can put it in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. But the American Association of Christian Counselors, you're not going to always find folks who are great. That's in every field. I'm part of a conservative therapist group on social media. I'd say more than half of us are Christian. Obviously, that's a really broad word, but we're all the time amazed, sadly, at some of the folks who are licensed therapists. They got no business being licensed therapists. So you have just as much negative on that side. Right. But you'd be able to, number one, understand that if you don't connect with the therapist, it's okay to leave. 
Right. It's okay to not go back. I think sometimes, especially if you come from a more rigid church background, being able to stand up for yourself and say, no, I don't like this, or this isn't appropriate, et cetera, et cetera, may be difficult for you. And that may be one of the first exercises that you engage in is mm-hmm. literally standing up for yourself. But if you don't connect with a therapist, it is okay to go seek someone else. Right. Most therapists will have a way of connecting with them beforehand, you know, whether it's their email, whether it's a phone call, shoot them an email and ask them questions. Hey, I see that you're on the Christian counselor's website, which means that they're licensed in this particular instance. How do you practice and what's your modality is the proper word, but what's your frame of mind? How do you look at things from a biblical perspective? If they're wanting someone that is strictly a biblical counselor, I would recommend over... There's three or four different groups that you could look at and search for counselors in that regard. The Association of Biblical Counselors. That's where I have to be very specific. Mm -hmm. The Association of Biblical Counselors, which is the ABC. Not the ACBC. ABC, which again, you'll find me on their therapist search engine, the state of Texas. They are open to working with individuals who are licensed secularly as well as who have gone through their training. I don't agree with everything that the ABC promotes. So here again, you're going to have to ask questions as you would with any therapist. But the ABC has folks that they partner with that are fantastic. Paul David Tripp is one of their main proponents. I adore the guy. He has one of the best ministries, especially in the reformed world for counseling, just putting it out there and being real with people. You may not like everything he puts out there and that's okay, but he tries his best to keep it real. And so he's one of the ones that they work a whole lot with, but I'm going to highly recommend that you don't touch anything with a 10 foot pole. If they come back and say that they are licensed through the ACBC, not because all ACBC therapists or counselors are bad. There are some fantastic ones. Got a couple of folks who came up in the same crazy IFB world that I grew up in that are licensed through them. And in particular, it's what I'm thinking of. He's a fantastic counselor, but he's the exception. He's not the rule. Yeah, for sure. And I would much rather you be careful and avoid it altogether than end up with one of the ones who's very much going to be a, it's all sin or here, read these verses or read this passage of scripture. Not that those things are bad, but if you can't focus on actually getting to what is broken, then all the vessel does is leak what's been put in. Yeah, that's that's a good point. (laughs) For sure. Um, but, But ask questions and don't be afraid to leave and go to someone else. Yeah. And sometimes it's a cost issue, and I understand that as well. That's where ABC, the Association of Biblical Counselors, a lot of that is church-based ministries. Mm -hmm. So you may find that some of those are more able to handle those who can't afford actual care. But everybody needs something. You know, that's one of the reasons I love what I'm able to do, because I have folks go, your therapy prices are so cheap. And I'm like, but that's because it's not my income. It's a ministry that I do out of the church and a portion of everything that comes in goes back to support that ministry. It pays for my grief groups. It pays for all that other stuff so that people can come in and not have to pay out of pocket. Mm. And that's where it's a blessing that I've got a church that supports that. Right. Yeah. That is certainly one of the benefits of good biblical counseling is the cost end of things. Because, you know, to see a licensed therapist, a lot of times it's over $100 a session. But again, (laughs) you know, depending on who you're seeing, it may be worth the $100 a session to be able to get what you need. So that's good advice, brother. And just to hear somebody who is a biblical counselor who has come out of the same circles that many of us have, fundamentalism, and has seen the negative 
side of things, but yet you just have a heart for people and for counseling folks from the Bible and doing it in a gospel-centered way. That's very refreshing to me. And I just want to thank you so much for coming and sharing that with the listeners, because I know there's a lot of people out there that they don't know what to do in their brokenness, Mm -hmm. dealing with whatever they're dealing with in life. Should I go to a secular therapist? Should I go only to my pastor? Should I go to a biblical counselor here or there? And really what we're basically promoting here is a very holistic approach. And you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, having a, you know, definitely robust understanding of common grace when it comes to these things, which we've talked about before, but also understanding that the gospel and the Bible are important. (laughs) It needs to be very paramount in the way that we guide people and understanding life, (laughs) you know, and the things that we face. Well, Zeb, thank you so much for joining us for the Broken Vessels podcast. Just as we part, would you like to share social media links or website or anything like that where people can connect with you? So I knew you were going to ask about that. And this is where my Facebook page really needs to be active because <laughs> it's not active. So there's no way to connect that way. Obviously, you can find me personally on social media. You can see the church I'm associated with. But if you want to connect, the easiest way is going to be literally my name. And I'll have Josh put this in the show notes, but it's Zeb at and it's Ebenezer Counseling Okay, great. And if any of you have further questions or want further investigation into, as you know, you may be looking for biblical counseling, I'm sure Zeb will guide you in the right direction. He'd be more than willing. Be more than happy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Be more than happy to help out with that. All right. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's been so wonderful to have you back on the Broken Vessels podcast. It's been wonderful to be able to revisit this subject and kind of look at it a little bit more from a positive direction because I completely and totally believe the Bible is important in counseling us. Want to make sure that you understand that, but it must be done in a gospel centered way with the right categories and the right distinctions. And Zeb has, I think, shown us that very clearly. And I hope that this will be encouraging to you. And if you're looking for counsel, reach out to what we've talked about and think about the things that we've talked about as you decide on what you need to do to be able to receive the counseling that you need. Thank you again for joining us for the Broken Vessels podcast, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) 